But this week, we're going to look at one verse, or just the first few words, the first three words of verse 8 in Revelation 21. Last week, we got through verse 7. In this chapter, John sees two things. He sees a new heaven and a new earth. He sees the new Jerusalem. It's ascending down from God, the residence of God. He hears two things. He hears a voice from heaven. Turn this off. That voice from heaven describes what will be in the future state that has never been and the things that won't be that have always been. Glorious good news. And then God all in all from the throne gives a last invitation for men to come and drink of the water of life freely. Freely, that word, that first word that was ever omitted and misquoted. The first word from God's mouth that someone misquoted and omitted. Eve omitted it. And it's such a stumbling block to so many throughout the ages who trust in their own righteousness instead of God who offers salvation freely if we will receive it. And that's where we ended. He that overcomes will inherit all things. An overcomer is a true believer. It's what naturally follows. John tells us that. And then we get to verse 8, but the terrible disjunctive conjunction. And I left you last week with this important truth. That word but, right there in that spot, reminds us that salvation, though freely offered from our Lord, though available to any who will come, is not automatic. It's not automatic. The Bible commands us to repent, to receive. It's free. Jesus told His disciples, freely you have received, freely give. But it's not cheap. It costs the Son of God His blood. Available but not automatic. Free but not cheap. Those things ought to sober our minds a bit. But that word but, it's a terrible disjunctive conjunction. It appears in a lot of important places in the scriptures and we ought to pay careful attention to it. When God says but, we ought to listen up. And there's been some great, encouraging, positive, joyful things spoken here in this chapter. But then the Spirit of God says but... Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. There was a but we came across the other week in our family devotions. We've been kind of slowly surveying the kings of the divided monarchy of Israel. Kings of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And we were talking about the reign of Uzziah, the second longest reigning king in Judah. He was a good king. By the time Uzziah got to the throne, the bloodline of David had again come to ascendancy. Ascendancy. The blood of Ahab had been demolished. It had polluted the line of David. And now David's blood has received dominance again. And Uzziah was a good king. We're told in verse 5, he sought God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, Not as long as he had a quiet time. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. 
good news. Then you go over to verse 15. And it talked about how he built up Jerusalem and fortified her and strengthened her military. Talked about making engines and towers and bulwarks that could shoot arrows and stones. He was an engineering genius per se. And his name spread far abroad for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. He was marvelously helped by God till he was strong. Verse 16, but, but, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. He somehow thought that because God had blessed him so much that he could go into the temple and do what God had said only the priests were to do, offer up incense. Well, I'm king and God's blessing me and I want to worship God. I'm going to take incense in there and I'm going to give an offering. His heart was lifted up. Look, you don't come to God on your terms. You worship God, His terms. The priest begged him not to do it, not to step out of his role, and he got angry. And at that moment, as he was standing there holding the censer, he, his flesh became white with leprosy, and he was a leper until his death. An incredible testimony until he was strong, but his heart was lifted up. Isn't that a familiar epithet of many who've been used of God in our society today? It's an epithet, I believe, of the Southern Baptist Convention. But, we should pay very close attention to this disjunctive conjunction in the Bible. If we look at Genesis and Revelation, the opening and the closing books of the Bible, there's some interesting places where this conjunction is used. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, of any of the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou mayest not eat. For in the day that you eat thereof you will die. But, Adam and Eve should have listened up. Chapter 6 of Genesis. Men were wicked in the earth. And it repented God that He had even made them. But, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's a good thing. But, is sometimes a good thing. Genesis chapter 13, but the men of Sodom were sinners and wicked exceedingly before the Lord. Lot went down to Sodom. He chose the cities of the plain, but the men of Sodom were wicked and exceedingly sinful before the Lord. Genesis 17, God says, I'll bless Ishmael, I'll make of him a great nation, but... My covenant is with Isaac. It's important. God didn't make a covenant with Abraham through Ishmael, like the Muslim claims. Isaac was the son of promise, as was Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. It is the Jew, the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is the children of the covenant. Not the children of Ishmael, like the liars in Islam claim. Genesis chapter 50, Joseph uses this. But, as for you, my brothers, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's some pretty important uses of that conjunction. Go to Revelation. 
Revelation 2, 5 and 6, the message to the church at Ephesus, Jesus said, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your patience, I know you can't stand those liars out there preaching false doctrine. You've tried those that say they are apostles and they're not. But I have somewhat against you. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. You've left your first love. That's a message in and of itself. But this thou hast. Ephesus had made some mistakes. It had lost its ardor for the things of the Lord. But, Jesus said, this thou hast. Thou hatest the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Ephesus hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hated. They had that in their favor. Pergamus. But, you tolerate those that have the doctrine of Balaam. Pergamus was the tolerant church, just like most of our churches today. And that but from the Lord was a great rebuke to Thyatira, but to the rest that are in Thyatira, hold fast what you have already. Even in that wicked, unrepentant church, there was a remnant. And Jesus said, but hold fast what you have already. In Genesis 11, John was told to measure the tribulation temple, but leave out the court of the Gentiles where it's going to be trampled underfoot of them for 42 months. That tribulation temple that Israel will build is not a temple commanded by God. It's the temple for Antichrist. And that's why we shouldn't support the Temple Institute and give to it like Christians do. That temple is for Antichrist. Because Israel is going to follow a false Messiah before they wake up. We've got to warn them now. And then here, I mean in chapter 20, But the rest of the dead lived not until after the millennium was expired. So we've seen this terrible disjunctive conjunction in Revelation already. And we see it here again. But the fearful... and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So here we have God ahead of talking about the new Jerusalem giving one last invitation. Let whoever is thirsty come and drink of the water of life freely. But be warned, these eight classes of people are going to burn in the lake of fire forever. Invitation to any who are thirsty, followed by the damnation of eight classes of people that pretty much sum up all of human sin. Let me make something abundantly clear. And I wish this newly elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention was listening. I know he's not. God does not classify people by the color of their skin, by their social standing, by their politics, by their wealth, by their church attendance, or by critical race theory. 
God doesn't classify people according to these things. You know, I try to give men the benefit of the doubt. I don't know anything about this man that was elected SBC president. I know he's said some things in the past, or at least I've been told that, that seem to promote this critical race theory. But I try to reserve drawing conclusions unless I can hear someone speak for themselves. And I heard him speak for himself. Guy gets elected, and then one of the first things he does this week is go give an interview to CNN. Why would you give an an interview to the world's most powerful and well-funded terrorist organization that hates God with everything in them? Why would you do that? Why would you pander to those people? And then you get on there, you misquote Scripture, you beat around the bush, you look like you're lost and confused, and you don't use the audience you're given to declare the bold truth about the gospel. Using the word gospel is not preaching the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whosoever will repent and believe. None of that. And then he had the gall to say that the problem is that people like me and you don't believe that systemic racism exists in America. And he also had the gall to say that he believes with all his heart that most Southern Baptist preachers are faithfully preaching the Word of God every Sunday in their pulpits. Are you kidding me? I mean, if that were true, that most pastors of the largest Protestant denomination in America, we're faithfully preaching the Word of God every Sunday. Would this country be in the spiritual mess it's in today? No. That's the proof. But I do have some breaking news for folks that say people like us just don't want to deal with the issues. Like I said before, I'm a lifelong Southern Baptist. My great-grandfather was a pioneer missionary with the Home Mission Board. Founded a small Bible college that still exists today. I first heard the gospel in a Southern Baptist home. I was saved in a Southern Baptist church. I was called to preach in a Southern Baptist church. And I attended a Southern Baptist seminary and graduated with honors. I'm not afraid to deal with systemic racism. In fact, let me deal with it right now, just in case you got any questions. Very easy. Mark it down. The only systemic racism in America today is in the heads of wicked men who use it for their advantage, just like Jude says about false teachers, who make merchandise of others with it, 2 Peter warns, and to mask and justify their own wicked deeds. What Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 16. That's the only systemic racism in this country. Is in the heads of men to use it for their own advantage. I've been all over this country and I've been all over this world And this is the least racist country in the world. You don't know what racism is until you go live in a place like Nepal where there's 60 different people groups. They all look the same to me. 
And yet they all hate each other because of their ethnicity and they can't have a conversation without making a cracking a joke or talking about how evil somebody is because they were born in this tribe. I mean, we, we are so... Spoiled in this country, making mountains out of molehills. I, rem- I think of a word from an old song by Scott Wesley Brown. I sing it sometimes at Christmas here. Men who march. Let's see, how does it go? Fools who march to win their right to justify their sin. That's not just homosexuals, guys. It's all this mess, this wokeness, this critical race theory. And it all goes back to what we see here. Looky, looky what we have here. Look who's first in line for eternal damnation. Look who's first in line, guys. Not the whoremongers. Not the idolaters. Not even the adulterers. The fearful. That word in the original language, delos, means cowards. That's what it means. The cowards, the fearful of a cowardly spirit, not valiant for the truth. Such an one fears man, but doesn't fear God. He's caught in a snare, as Proverbs 29, 25 says. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso trusteth in the Lord is safe. No resolve. Righteous when is acceptable. An in-season only preacher. When we're to preach in season, out of season. Paranoid and anxious over a cross look or a cross word and will sacrifice precious liberty and freedom for their children just to avoid upsetting someone. That's a coward. Make no mistake. God classifies cowards with whoremongers, murderers, and idolaters. Right here. And they're first in line. This is no little thing to God, my friends. No little thing. James in chapter 3 talks about the tongue, how it's a little instrument and yet can cause great evil. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth, James 3, 5. God's cowardice is a little fire that kindles great evil. And I believe... That just in the COVID hysteria alone, just in that, don't even, let's don't even think about all this other mess, but just in the COVID hysteria alone, the American church is guilty of kindling great evil by our cowardly capitulation. And in some ways, when I hear about the persecution of Christians in Canada, in some ways, I believe that that persecution is a stain on our hands Because we didn't stand up in this country and the Canadian government could look down and say, well, they ain't doing nothing down here and extend its tyranny. Had American churches stood up against this tyranny, then the Canadian authorities would have backed down. So we can blame ourselves for those pastors in prison up there to an extent. A coward is one who apologizes to appease. I'm sick and tired of people saying righteous things. And then when there's a little pressure, they go and apologize. Not because they're sorry they said something wrong, but so they can appease wicked men or go hate them anyway. Oh, that somebody would just speak the truth and not retract it. 
I want you to think about something when we talk about cowardice. Now, the end of this message is good news. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to blast. I'm not in here to blast everybody and make you feel so downtrodden. There's good news. Trust me, if you just be patient. But the fearful, there's some good news there. Just be patient. Wait for it. Think about this. The men of Sodom, when we look at the scriptural testimony. They were idle cowards before they were whoremongers. They were cowards first. And then they were whoremongers. I mentioned this passage before just real quickly. Genesis 13, 13. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. This is the first thing we learn about the people of Sodom. Sinful, wicked. But then you go over to chapter 14. After Lot has moved to Sodom, there's an invasion of some middle, ancient Near Eastern kings who come in there and ransack the land. And the king of Sodom and those confederate with him go out to try to stop this invasion. And we're told in chapter 14, verse 8, And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admon, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bala, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidim. So we had these kings, confederate with Sodom, there were five of them, went out against these four ancient Near Eastern kings that came in to put them under tribute. And so... Five kings went out to battle four. And then we're told in verse 10 that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. They fled. They ran off and left the others there to deal with it. They fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And then this invading army, we're told, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their victuals, and went their way. And they took Lot. They captured Lot, who was living in Sodom. They, they, they spoiled him of his goods, and they carried him off. Then, what does Abraham have to do? The king fled like a coward, and so Abraham, therefore, had to gather some servants. He got together 318 men, servants in his own household, and they went after this invading army, pursued them all the way to the northern city of Dan and got Lot back and got all the spoiled goods back. So explain to me how kings flee and yet one man with his servants, only 300 people, I don't know how big these armies were, is able to chase them down and get the stuff back. When Abraham comes back, the king of Sodom, who's shown himself a coward, attempts to reward Abraham, and let him keep goods and things that were brought back. And Abraham, we learn, wouldn't even take a shoestring from a coward, lest that coward have occasion to boast in another man's bravery. When you look at what Abraham says here, it says... He says to the king of Sodom, Sodom, I lift up mine hand unto the Lord, verse 22, the most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet. 
and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Abraham wouldn't even take a shoestring from a coward. And then we get over to Ezekiel 16. The prophet here shed some light on the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. I like to use this chapter when we teach our summer volunteer teams about how to rightfully divide the word of truth. We like to look at this chapter. But in verse 49, Ezekiel says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Sodom's problem started with pride. Everything they needed, all the food they needed, and idleness. Didn't care about the poor and needy. And then what happened? They were haughty, verse 50, and they committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. A nation that commits abomination and glorifies homosexuality and sexual perversion, that is the the fruit. It's not the root. It's the fruit of pride, fullness, idleness, neglect, and cowardice. It's the fruit of these things. Pride, having everything, all the conveniences, not having to work for anything, lots of idle time we can spend on our computers and our smartphones. This fosters cowardice. Just like it was seen in the king of Sodom. And it leads to haughty abomination. This is America. I told somebody the other day as I was walking with my cross. And we had the, I had the little flag in my backpack. I said, I'm carrying the flag upside down because America is upside down. It's upside down. And the question I have is, will God have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah? He won't. And that means we're in trouble. Because the same pride, the same idleness, the same cowardice that was in Sodom is in us. The same haughtiness that was in Sodom is in our nation. And the same abomination that was in Sodom is in our nation. Even worse. And here's the thing that makes us more damnable than Sodom as a nation. It's what Jesus said to the people of Capernaum. Woe unto you, Capernaum, for if the men of Sodom had heard preaching like this, they would have repented long ago. I believe it's in Matthew chapter 11. I don't want to misquote the Lord here. Matthew chapter 11 Jesus references Sodom, 23 and 24. Thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. If it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than Capernaum, Won't it also be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for America? Because like Capernaum, we too know the truth. It's been spoken here. The Bible can be found on any bookshelf, in any dime store. Woe unto the cowards of America today. Woe unto the cowards. If the Lord tarries, 
The children and grandchildren of the cowards will curse their memory. There's some interesting examples of cowardice in the Bible I think we should look at. Probably some places that you wouldn't expect. Turn to Genesis 3. Cowardice takes many forms. There can be those who wax valiant and fight. And they're not afraid to stand before an army. But oh boy, are they afraid that someone might be offended. Cowardice takes many forms. Some cowards can be brave in some areas and fearful in others. Genesis chapter 3, we see the first cowards in human history. Verse 8, And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. Then God says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of that tree I've told you not to eat of? Cowardice hides when no man pursues. God wasn't pursuing him. God was doing what he did every day. He was walking in the garden to come fellowship with Adam. Adam hid when no man pursued. Cancel culture is not new, friends. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve hid because they thought they could cancel God and get away with it. And they couldn't. Let's just cancel. Let's just act like it's not an issue. Let's go hide. Cowards pass the buck when they get caught in their foolishness. Adam passed the buck. We often think that Adam blamed his wife. No, he didn't. Matthew's talked about this before, and it's a very good point. Adam said, The woman whom thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me of the tree. Adam's not blaming Eve, he's blaming God. Look, you gave her to me. Isn't that what we do? We blame God. That's a mark of a coward. It it models the cowardice of our first father. There's another coward a little bit later in Genesis chapter 9. This is Bible race theory here. Bible race theory. Genesis chapter 9 verse 20. This is after the flood... And Noah began to be a husbandman and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken and he was uncovered within his tent. He was naked in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth. And he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. Cowardice has consequences 
that can span entire generations. If you want to know why some of the things are the way they are involving different types of people and races and stuff today, it's because foolish cowardice has consequences. And what God said would happen would happen. Now, that doesn't excuse it, but it's just a fact. And what am I saying? I'm saying that something was done here. We're told that when Noah awoke, he was found naked. His son Ham saw him, and like a coward, he ran off and told his other two brothers about it, took his problem and made it their problem. But when Noah awoke and saw what his younger son did, he opened his mouth. He didn't curse Ham, his son. He cursed his grandson. Okay? That word, younger son, can also be talking about a grandchild because it happens over in Genesis 29 where Laban is called the son of Nahor. Well, Laban is actually the grandson of Nahor. Bethuel was his father. Nahor was his grandfather. So, Whatever happened, Noah awoke and knew that his grandson had done something wicked and cursed him. And then as a result, Japheth and Sham, who came in there and covered their father's nakedness, were blessed. We've seen that fulfilled through the rise of Israel and the fact that the gospel went west into the western world. And that the European peoples received it and spread it throughout the rest of the world. That's all been fulfilled. Canaan is cursed. Canaan doesn't exist anymore. The Canaanites were eradicated. They don't exist. But it's interesting because Ham, though not cursed, he's the father of most of the North African and Central African peoples. He's not blessed. There's no blessing for him. And it's not because of what he looked like or what skin color his descendants would have, it's because he was a coward. Ham saw something that involved his son, Noah's grandson, something wicked. What exactly happened is not explicitly stated. Was the grandson mocking him, jesting, or what did he rape him and commit sodomy with him? If you look at some of the ancient Hebrew Traditions and interpretations about this, there's a wild slew of it. But whatever it was, it was enough for Noah to curse his grandson and for God to fulfill these things throughout history. It wasn't Ham who was cursed. Those who teach that God curses the black race because Ham is the father of them, don't read this scripture right because Ham is not cursed. Canaan is. Canaan's descendants were the Canaanites that God eradicated. And Ham is the father of Put, the black African, but he's also the father of Mizraim, the Egyptians, and the Libyans. They're not black. So, I mean, Ham's more than the father of just the Central African blacks. If you go to Africa, it's the Central Africans that are black, not the Southern Africans or the Northern Africans. So this isn't about being black. And whoever preaches that is, is twisting this scripture. But Ham was a coward, and he was a cowardly father. And he refused to deal with his son and he passed it off on to someone else. Cowardice makes its problems someone else's problem. Won't do what has to be done. Sits around and hopes somebody else will do it. 
Just like the people that watch innocent folks being assaulted and stand there with a cell phone, won't do what has to be done, hope somebody else will do it. That's the spirit of Ham. And that's cowardice. And Ham's cowardice affects the world today. 1 Samuel 10 is an interesting bit of cowardice. Mirrors. I've picked these examples because they kind of mirror where our society is today. I don't know what color Sham, Ham, and Japheth were. They, pot, they, they fathered all the races of people that are alive today, and there's a whole lot of different colors out there. So, you know, that's just what happens with the human genome. It's what happens. So that's completely irrelevant. 1 Samuel 10. Saul is anointed king. God, he's chosen. Samuel tells the people in verse 25 the manner of the kingdom, wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. And there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial, Belial, children of Belial in the Old Testament are what we would call Antifa uh, today. Just ravagers out there. BLM mobs. That's what they were, just trying to make trouble. The children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him. They hated Saul and brought him no presents. But he, Saul, held his peace. We give Saul a bad time. He sinned against the Lord and lost the kingdom. He rebelled against God. But there's instances where Saul's righteousness exceeds the righteousness of many of us here in America. Saul was despised and insulted, but what did he do? He held his peace. How many of us would? Well... Then the town of Jabesh-Gilead in chapter 11 is attacked by the Ammonites. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead need help. And so they sent messengers and Saul decides he's going to go and help and deliver these people. Saul is not a coward. Saul had been insulted amongst the people when Saul, oh he was anointed by Samuel. And the people didn't speak up. They didn't say anything. And he was insulted by these wicked men. And he held his peace. And then Saul goes and has a great victory over the Ammonites, for which the men of Jabesh-Gilead never forget. When Saul and his sons are killed by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, many years later, 40 years later, the men of Jabesh-Gilead come out and take down their bodies and bury them. So these men never forgot what Saul did for them. But it's after this victory in chapter 11 we see the cowardice. Verse 12. And the people, after the victory, the people who said nothing when these men insulted God's anointed there. And the people said unto Samuel, Who are these that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. So now they speak up. Now they speak up after Saul has a victory. Over the Ammonites. Now they speak up. Verse 
And then we see Saul again acting more righteous than most of us. And Saul said, There shall not be a man put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Saul didn't seek revenge. He had the authority and the backing of the people and could have killed those people that insulted him. And he said, No, not today. He gives glory to God for the victory. Man, that's better than most, most of us. So we see some fine things from Saul in his early reign. But here we have an example of cowardice amongst the people. They didn't speak up when wrong was done. They conveniently spoke up when it was safe to do so. That's just like us here in America today. Cowardice talks big only when surrounded by those who agree with it. There's a lot of hard preachers, good, strong preachers, In Baptist churches, I grew up hearing some of them. But the message that's preached strongly from behind the pulpit, when many sitting out there would agree, it won't be preached on a street corner. I was so encouraged this week, walking on Dysertsville Road in Burke County. A postman pulled up, a black man. He was a postman, pulled up. And I went over, he saw my cross... And I went over to speak to him. And before I could barely say something, he's like, man, I like what you're doing. My pastor's like you. He goes out and preaches on street corners sometimes. And I said, brother, I said, you got a good pastor. If he has the guts to preach on a corner, what he also preaches in the pulpit. Praise God for street preaching pastors. And that man was just so excited. He took a track from me. It was just a great encounter. Praise God for that. So somewhere around here, there's a preacher that goes out and preaches on street corners and one of his flock delivers mail on a very rural postal route near Dysertsville, North Carolina. Praise God for that. Sometimes even cowards wax valiant in battle. They don't fear an army twice as strong as theirs, but they fear what people think. And therefore, they won't do what needs to be done when they have the power to do it. No, I'm not talking about Donald Trump, although I could be. Or Mike Pence. I saw a sign in somebody's yard this week, a Trump Pence. And they'd taken duct tape and put it over Pence's name. I thought it was great. Great! Second Chronicles chapter 13. Now, I'm not going to read all of this. But this is an interesting story where you have a king who is valiant in fight and willing to go out to meet an army twice his size. But when it comes to what the people of his kingdom think, he has the power to get rid of something that is a stain and a thorn, but he doesn't do it. It's the second king of the southern kingdom after its division. Solomon's son Rehoboam reigned for 17 years. And then his son Abijam came to the throne for three years. And while Abijam was on the throne, Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom, who had already forsaken God, came with an enemy of 800,000 men. Now, when I think about some of the armies in Scripture and the size, there's not an army on earth that could field that many on a field of battle today. These ancient armies were large. Kind of makes me wonder if the, the, the classic history we've all been told about how man has evolved and history this and we're more advanced and we understand things. Kind of makes me wonder what they've been lying to us about in human history too. Now we can trust this. We can trust this. 
When it says 800,000 went to battle against 400,000, that's 1.2 million people on a field of battle. We can believe it. But yet human historians want us to believe that we're the most advanced because we got an iPhone. And they want us to believe that these incredible structures that are geometrically near perfect, involving incredibly carved stones, and these incredible pyramids and Gothic structures and pipe organs, they want us to believe that men somehow figured out how to build all that stuff while they were riding around on horses and buggies. And that somehow, no power tools, there weren't any power tools or cranes, and yet these things were built and we're the ones who are more advanced. I mean, we've got all the power tools in the world and the quality of construction is terrible today. So guys, we've been lied to about a whole bunch of stuff. But here we have an army of 800,000 of Jeroboam invades the southern kingdom and Abijam leads his army. It's only half as strong. Kind of like Robert E. Lee willing to die for old Virginia in the old south Fielded armies half the size of the Union Army still whooped them every time. Old Joe Hooker, that Union general, God help Bobby Lee because I'm going to whoop him. Even God can't stop me. Old Joe Hooker went running back across the river to Washington with his tail between his legs at Chancellorsville, Stonewall Jackson's greatest hour. Them men's was, them men's was patriots. But anyway, Abijam came out with an army half the size and he stood on Mount Zimarim and he boasted of Israel's faithfulness to God and how Jeroboam had set up a false religion and false priests. Abijam led the people to cry unto the Lord and God gave them the victory. And then we're told in chapter 13, verse 18, I encourage you to read this story when you have time. Thus the children of Israel were brought under at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied upon the Lord God of their fathers. Bravery. Bravery. They relied on God. God gave them the victory. But, here's where the cowardice comes in, and it's subtle. It's very subtle. Verse 19, and Abijam pursued after Jeroboam and took cities from him. So they not only defeated the northern army that was twice its size, they pursued it and took possession of cities. And guess what the first one was? Bethel with the towns thereof. Bethel, the location of Jeroboam's golden calf, came under the control of Abijam who had relied upon the Lord. Came under his control. And this is where we see the cowardice. Because you know what? That golden calf stayed in Bethel. It stayed in there. It was a snare to all future kings of the northern kingdom. And it wasn't until Josiah destroyed it. 300 plus years later. Or 300 years later. So here we had a man who was valiant on the field of battle. But when it came to doing what needed to be done and stand against sin, he was a coward. He had authority over the city where this golden calf was located and did nothing to remove it. Kind of like the pro-life politicians today. Talk a big talk. But when it comes to actual legislation, when it comes to actually backing the abolition of this wicked sin in our country, no way. It can't be found. Southern Baptists. 
Just like Abijam. Take a stand, won't do it. Won't even talk about abortion. And then I think of Donald Trump. You were in a position of authority. Commander-in-Chief of the military. You knew our election had been stolen. You knew that that inauguration was false and you did nothing. You told your people to come up there and take a stand and then you went home. Shame on you. You're no better than this king. You're a coward. I'll remember that come 2024. You can mark my words. Mark it. Don't vote for a coward, my friends. Don't do it. There's not a more pathetic coward in Scripture than a simp controlled by his wife or a wicked woman. There's no more pathetic coward in the world than a simp. That's a modern day word. It's a word that talks about a man who's controlled by a woman. Leads, her, leads him around on a leash. There's no more pathetic coward than a simp controlled by his wife or a wicked woman. And boy, there's a simp in Israel's history. His name was Ahab. First Kings. I just want you to know what a coward is. We've got to look at some of these cowards here. First Kings 21-25. Bear with me. And there was none like unto Ahab which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. That word stirred up there in the Hebrew means he was soft. She got him to do what she wanted. Now the funny thing is when Elijah rebuked Ahab for what he did at Naboth's vineyard, did what his wife told him to do. Ahab actually humbled himself and he treaded lightly before the Lord, we're told. And because of that, what God said he was going to do to Ahab's house, God said, I won't do it in your lifetime. So Ahab would tread lightly before the Lord and he would humble himself before the Lord, but he wouldn't stand up to his wife. That's messed up. That's backwards. Just like in the kingdom of Israel, where there are simps in the church, there is the spirit of Jezebel. And I talk about this in the message to Thyatira part 3. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Because it was that spirit of Jezebel in the church at Thyatira. And I told you how I believed that what you had there was a pastor or, or leadership that was being controlled by a Jezebel-like woman in the church. Controlled by his wife. And that's not the way God set it up. So we see some cowardice in the Bible. So when the Bible talks about the fearful or the cowardly, we can know what that looks like. There's some other aspects of cowardice we should consider. According to Proverbs, it's rooted in slothfulness. Now, slothfulness is not laziness. It's more than that. Laziness... Slothfulness is a laziness that proceeds from being comfortable. You get so used to being comfortable that you don't have to work for anything and you become entitled. So it's an entitled laziness. Some people are just flat out lazy. That's just what they are. If I went to Nepal, and the Nepali from this tribe would tell me that these people are lazy because they're of this tribe. And so I mean, it's just like... We don't even know what racism is in this country. Man, I've had people talk such awful things about other people in Nepal, and they don't look any different to me. I don't understand. 
Or, man, listen to Asian folks talk about other Asian folks. You know, I, it's, I've hardly ever heard a Chinese person say anything positive about a Japanese person. I've hardly ever heard a Japanese person have anything positive to say about a Korean. And the Koreans ain't got anything positive to say about anybody but themselves. <laughs> I know that because I've been in martial arts for over 25 years. Japanese, well, the reason why you have all these styles in martial arts is because the Japanese wanted a leg up on the Chinese and the Koreans wanted a leg up on the Japanese. I mean, it's crazy. But it's just, that's what happens in a sinful, wicked world where men serve themselves. But we've got it good here in America and we've despised it. Doesn't mean there's not problems. It's a wicked country. But rooted in slothfulness. Slothfulness is laziness that proceeds from comfort. And it results in a habit of idleness. And this is linked or rooted in cowardice. And the reason I know is because it says twice in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 22. 13. The slothful man saith, There is a lion without, I'll be slain in the streets. So the slothful man ain't going to get up and go do what he needs to do because, uh uh-oh, there might be a lion in the streets and I might get killed. So in other words, he deals in hypotheticals and he's scared to death of something that might happen, so he's slothful and he stays at home. We're told this again in chapter 26. When the Word of God says something once, we ought to pay attention. But when it says it twice, we ought to really listen up. The slothful man saith, verse 13, there's a lion in the way, there's a lion in the streets. There's a virus in the streets. There's a virus in the way. We've got to stay home. Proverbs says that's a slothful man, and a slothful man's a coward. We're slothful in this country because we've had so many blessings and comforts, and we don't have to work for anything, and we become entitled in our country. It's an entitlement mentality. It's connected and results in cowardice. Cowardice that we see in America today is rooted in our slothfulness, our entitlement, because we've grown fat and we've forgotten the blessings of God. We've turned our back instead of our face. It's interesting that Jesus links cowardice with slothfulness in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents. There was one man who was given a talent and he feared his master, so he went and buried the talent in the earth. And when the master came back to reckon with his servants, Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 24, Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee and that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, here thou, there, there how... There thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. So the servant who was cowardly, our Lord calls wicked and slothful. Entitlement. American society is that. We are slothful and we are cowards. Now, that being said... A society of cowards is wickedness in the eyes of God. It is. But it is also a judgment from God on a nation that has turned its back to God instead of its face. 
So while it's wickedness before the Lord, it is also a sign of His judgment. If you go to Leviticus 26, the first 13 chapters, God promises Israel blessings that they will see in their nation if they obey God. Now, Israel is the one that said, not God. Israel is the one that boasted to Moses, whatsoever the Lord says, we will do it. Okay, all right, God said, I'm going to hold you to it. And that's why even in the millennium, Israel is under community service. They're going to do what they said they're going to do. But you have the blessings for their obedience. And then verses 14 through 39, God talks about the curses or the judgments that will come if they reject Him, if they turn their back on Him. And I find Leviticus 26, verse 36, very enlightening, and it sheds light on why we see a lot of what we see with Israel even today. Leviticus 26, 36, after God says He'll judge them through a variety of ways and scatter them to the heathen and cause the land to be desolate, so she can enjoy her Sabbath. Verse 36, And upon them that are left alive of you, I will send a faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies, and the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them, and they shall flee as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursue them. Afraid at the sound of a leaf shaking on a tree is what God said He would do to Israel. It's his judgment. The cowardice of a society that flees when no man pursues is judgment from God on a nation that should know him. So I'm not surprised by Israel's response to COVID. I'm not surprised by that. I don't even blame them for it. It's God's outworking of judgment that he promised. I'm not surprised that most Israelis, even the Christians, were all about Locking down, hiding in the house, no social distance. We've got to get to the... I'm not surprised by that. God told them as a nation they would flee at a leaf shaking on a tree. So I don't hold it against them. It's God's Word working out before us. In the same sense, should we be surprised by America's response? I don't think so. Because we also know the truth. And have turned from it. So why would there not be cowardice in our society as well? In fact, the church's response to this COVID hysteria. Now, don't get me wrong. COVID's real. It's God's judgment on this nation. The COVID is the judgment and our response to it is the judgment. This confusion comes... Because we've turned our back to God instead of our face. It's what God told would happen to Israel. And Israel's given to us as an example so we can be warned. Jesus said this to say, had this to say in Revelation. Bear with me, I'm almost finished. Revelation 3 to the message of the church at Laodicea. When I look at how the church in America has responded to all of this, this last year or so, it just proves Christ's truth. And it proves that he was speaking to us in this letter. Jesus says, he that hath an ear. No, wait, I'm at the wrong. Chapter 3, verse 17. Because thou, this is the American church. And I think, I mean, this is the Laodicean church. Remember, Laodicea means the rights of the people, the entitlement of the people. That's what it's all about today. It's all about the people. It's not about God. Just look at that Southern Baptist Convention last week. 
Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's just been proven true. We're not rich and in need of nothing like we thought here in America in our churches until recently. We're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. We need a revival. We need an awakening from the Lord. And then let me leave you with this. And I know it's going a little long. Please bear with me. An unsaved coward isn't just guilty of cowardice. He's connected to it. He is a coward. And the cowards are first in line to damnation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that a whole slew of people, not the sins, the people connected to those sins, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That word effeminate there means soft. Soft. Won't take a stand. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Homosexuals. That's what that means. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Guys, an unsaved man doesn't just tell lies. He's a liar. An unsaved man doesn't just show cowardice. He is a coward. A believer, on the other hand, you and I, we can be guilty of these things and be chastened by the Lord for them. We can lose our rewards. We can lose the joy of our salvation in our daily walk. We can damage or lose our testimony. We might even damage or lose some of our millennial inheritance. We might lose our health. The very thing we fear might kill us as God's chastisement. But we are not connected to these sins as is an unbeliever. And how do I know that? Because after Paul says all of these things about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says in verse 11, And such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You've taken to drink of that water of life freely and God has washed you through Jesus Christ. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Some of us used to be these things. Some of us may still struggle with these things, but we are not these things if we've been washed. And I'm going to talk more about this as we proceed through this list next week here in Revelation 21.8. Therefore, because the believer who struggles with these things is not connected to them, therefore, there is good news for cowardly Christians. There's good news for those of us who have struggled with cowardice in our lives, who didn't speak up at times like we should have who went along to get along and wouldn't take a stand, who stood by while innocent people were being mocked and treated terribly. We can be redeemed from our cowardice as Christians unto great boldness. Did you know that a cowardly Christian can be redeemed unto great boldness for the kingdom of God? And we've got proof of it. Right there in the New Testament. Turn to Mark chapter 14. 
We've got the proof. Right here, all sandwiched right here together. Mark chapter 14. I'm going to start at verses 48. And this context is here in the Garden of Gethsemane. When they came to arrest our Lord. There were men around our Lord, His disciples, that had talked a big talk. I will die with you, Lord. I will defend you. I will not forsake you. Verse 48. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And they all forsook Him and fled. The mob came to arrest Jesus, and what happened? His disciples forsook Him and fled. His disciples were cowardly followers of Christ that day. Keep reading. It wasn't just the disciples. And there followed him a certain young man, verse 51, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. It wasn't just the disciples. It was the author of this gospel, Mark. Mark, they tried to grab a hold of him. And he ran off like a coward in the night, left his clothes behind, naked. And then verse 71 in this same chapter. And you'll know who it's talking about. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. So here we have followers of Jesus, the disciples, who showed themselves cowards. They fled into the night. We have the author of this epistle who shows himself cowardly, not just here, but later in the book of Acts. Things got a little tough on the first missionary journey. And when they got a little tough, and Paul and Barnabas left Cyprus and hit the mainland there, he packed up his bags and went home because he was a coward. John Mark. And then we have Peter. Peter denies the Lord. He wasn't even being threatened with bodily harm or a mob. It was just some women and a couple servants hanging around talking about, man, you were with him. He was scared to death. And cursed and sweared that he didn't know Jesus Christ. These were followers of the Lord who acted with cowardice. However, the disciples, John, Mark, Peter. That's not the end of the story. Turn to Acts, Acts 4.33. It's not the end of the story. There's good news for us who have failed in this area. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. The disciples were cowards in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here in this passage, and with great Power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Here we see cowardly men who fled in the night have great power to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. And they turn the world upside down. In Colossians, we won't go to these verses. At the end of Colossians, in the letter to Philemon, and in 2 Timothy, we learn about John Mark's legacy. The one who fled naked and the one that quit and went home on the missionary journey. In fact, Barnabas wanted to give him a second chance. And Paul said, no way. And so Barnabas and Paul ended up splitting up. And Paul took Silas on a second missionary journey. But later, when Paul's in prison, in Colossians, Philemon, and in 2 Timothy, we're told that Mark, Paul says, he is my fellow laborer. And if he comes, I want you to receive him and treat him just like you would me. Paul said to Timothy, bring Mark with you. He is profitable to me for the ministry. And then we learn that Mark, under the tutelage of Peter, 
the discipleship of Peter, both were cowards that night in Gethsemane, is who gave us the first gospel, the gospel of Mark. So guys, the end of these cowardices amongst the followers of our Lord are testimonies of great boldness. It was Peter who fled and who denied our Lord Jesus Christ, cursing and swearing that when he was arrested and brought before the tribunal there in Jerusalem in Acts 5.29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. In other words, we're not going to obey your executive order, your mandate. We're going to preach. We can't help but preach what we've seen heard. We're going to obey God rather than men. Peter was bold. So here we have those who acted cowardly, but the end of their testimony was one of great boldness. That gives us hope. That ought to be good news for us post-COVID. And why? Sometimes, and we see it here in the New Testament, repentant cowards, they lose round one. They lose it. But they prove to be the staunchest defenders of the faith when the bell sounds for round two. That's the testimony. That's good news. Some of us acted cowardly. I've been cowardly a lot in my life, different times, for various reasons. I'd like to think that God's worked on me. He's given me boldness at other times. But sometimes, messing things up, coming to a place of repentance, God can use that and give us great boldness for the faith. And the testimony of these cowards in the Garden of Gethsemane, later on in Paul's ministry, they were saying... These men that have turned the world upside down are now coming to our town. So that ought to give us hope here as Christians in America. My prayer is that though the church has really messed things up this last year, out of it will arise some boldness. Some boldness to call this nation to repentance. Not to go on CNN and beat around the bush and talk about all of this, but to call men to repentance. To to pray for spiritual revival and awakening. And to stop trying to fix a spiritual problem with political solutions. The cowards are first in line. And it's not the whoremongers that comes next. It's the unbelievers. And so we're going to talk about these other classes of people next week. Here's something I want to give you to chew on about the unbelieving. Just like cowardice, God classifies unbelief with whoremongers, murderers, and idolaters. And unbelief is the seed of cowardice. In that great hall of faith, we're told that Rahab the harlot, it doesn't say perish not with the idolaters. It doesn't say perish not with the whoremongers. It doesn't say perish not with the Canaanites who worship the false god. It says, but Rahab the harlot perished not with them that believed not when she received the spies with peace. It was... Jericho's sin was its unbelief at the testimony of Jehovah God who had brought Israel out of Egypt. And we're going to see Israel's unbelief was a seed of cowardice that got them wandering around the desert for 40 years. And the thing they feared, the specific thing they feared ended up being such a not that big of a deal that in the book of Joshua, it's just given a little sentence. Oh, by the way, 
Joshua defeated the sons of Anak there. The, 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 the By the way, so we'll get into that next time. I hope this was a blessing to you. Let's pray. Um, I just pray for us this week. I just want to be able to communicate something to these campers that they may not, not hear. You guys know I don't mince words and I try to be bold and beat around the bush. and not, I mean, not beat around the bush and, 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 and uh, uh, you, you'll hear things that don't tend to go with what society defines as uh, acceptable. So I just want the grace to be able to challenge some young people about what a missionary is. If you're a Christian, I used to use this when people would ask me, are you a missionary in a foreign country? My response would be, every Christian's a missionary. Every Christian's a missionary. It's not my occupation. It's my calling as a Christian. So I'd appreciate your prayers there, and thank God for the break we're going to have this week. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. It's hard truth. But, Lord, in this hard truth, there is a, there is a tale of redemption, Lord. We can be redeemed. We can be those that say such were some of us, but now we are washed, and therefore you can use us. So, Lord, as Christians, help us to confess our cowardice, Lord, and to be bold like the apostles, to learn from our mistakes as did Peter, John, Mark, and the apostles, and to be used greatly of you because you are a merciful Savior, O oh Lord. You're, you're gracious. You loved Peter. He denied you, and yet you appeared to him after your resurrection, and he was redeemed. So we pray that for us. We pray that for the church here in America. And, um, Lord, I pray you just raise up men and women of God who will not be afraid, who will take a stand like the martyrs of old. The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And those we remember today were not known and were not praised and were not popular. They were hated in their own day and time, and yet they're remembered today, and the tyrants and the society that hated them are barely even a mention in the corridors of history. So, Lord, Thou knowest the end of this story here in America. We know You're coming soon. The signs are all around. We do pray that You would give us an awakening in this country, that You would do a work before You're finished, just like You did in Nineveh and there in the kingdom of Judah. Lord, we pray for a surprising work of God like You did in the great awakenings, O oh God. And may it begin with the church. May we not be afraid. May the remnant take a stand. And draw men unto yourself, O oh Lord, for salvation is of the Lord. Thank you that in Jesus we need not fear. You have not given us a spirit of fear. Thank you that in Jesus we are not cowards because we have been washed. And help us to put away our cowardice. As fathers, may we be men for our children and our wives. Loving them as Christ loved the church. Not provoking our children to anger. Raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Not cowards, but real men who love Jesus. Thank you for the fathers in this church that do love Jesus. I know they're here. We're blessed in this church. There's good fathers in here, and I'm thankful for that. Thankful for godly wives, godly women who are seasoned in years, who can uh, teach the younger women, godly men who are more seasoned in years that can teach us who are younger. And we're thankful. Bless the food we're about to eat. Bless our fellowship. And I pray for each and every saint in this room that you will go with them this week and use them in a mighty way for your glory. A light to burn bright in the darkness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.